Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, the Associate Dean for Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. My old life coach, James Fennessy, couldn't join us today, but Dr. Adrian Calamel, a professor of history at Finger Lakes Community College, and I are going to forge onward anyway. This is the fourth episode in a mini-series within a series on the Arab Spring. In our last episode, we discussed how the Arab Spring played out in Yemen and Libya. Today, we're moving on to Syria, which has seen the longest-lasting effects of a popular uprising combined with regional geopolitics. In our next episode, we will somehow wrap all of this up and draw some conclusions about the Arab Spring and its importance. So welcome back, everybody. We are speaking again with Dr. Adrian Calamel about the incidents of the Arab Spring back in the early 20-teens. We spent the last couple episodes talking about a variety of countries in the Middle East, including Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, and Libya. Today, we're going to be focusing on the last big chunk of the Middle East that we haven't talked about yet, which, of course, is Syria, which is still in the news every so often. And so we want probably going to spend a little bit of time focusing just on Syria. In our next episode, we will come back and give some general summary, some general conclusions about all of this, kind of tie all these various strands together. Today, we're going to focus on Syria. And so, again, like last time, I'd like to welcome Dr. Adrian Calamel. How are you doing today? I'm great, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So uh, catch us up on where we've been, and then let's start talking about Syria. Sure. Um, when we looked at the first two, you mentioned Tunisia and Egypt, how it was a relatively quick process. You had the street protests, some international pressure, and then both Ben Ali and then Hosni Mubarak of Tunisia, they of Egypt, they both stepped aside. And if you look at, you know, it was just a couple of weeks, and they're, all of a sudden they're out of power. These guys have held positions for 30, 30 plus odd years of running their country. And then we uh, we moved on to Yemen and Libya, in another case of two individuals that had run their countries. And um, it was a little different than Egypt because it, it wasn't a smooth transition. There's still transitioning, and you have a case of sort of basically an unreported civil war happening in both those countries. But that brings us to Syria. Everybody knows about Syria. Well, knows the name now. Before, I'm not sure people could mention that there was a country named Syria. Right. But it's I all bet over most the... people don't really actually know what has happening there. It's just we hear it popping up in our you know yeah. news stories all the time and all that. Exactly. It, it seems like the logical point to end on because nothing really had well, actually. When we get to our final episode, we'll we'll take a look at uh, where Syria stands now. But um, you know, this is a conflict that started right at the same time as in the Arab Spring. You know, around the February, March, April time frame of 2011, and we see it stretched all the way out to 2019, with um, you know carnage on all sides. And in Syria, the reasons why it got into this situation, I think we're going to go into these now and why Syria became this really violent sandbox that pulled in all these different state actors, non-state actors, and made it this, uh, I hate to use a quagmire, but it seems like it is a bit of a quagmire. The only thing is the United States isn't really in that quagmire right now. Right. So just to kind of put this all into context, so you you were mentioning that all this stuff is happening. Basically, all of the content of our last 
this is our fourth episode on this topic, but all the episodes that we've been talking about, basically all the action has been happening in those early months of just of 2011. And so this is yeah. a lot of turmoil and drama and, you know, military action and, and social protests. That's a lot of stuff happening all at one time in various countries around the world. Well, not around the, around the world, various countries around the region, obviously. Yeah. And so... In Syria, it's obviously not immune to all the stuff that's happening around it. So yeah, let's talk a bit about what happened in Syria before this point, and then we can talk about how, while all those other protests are breaking out in other countries, what happened in Syria. So yeah, let's let's look at the background of Syria. This is this being a history podcast sure. and all. Let's uh, <laughs> talk a bit about what happened in Syria before 2011. Yeah, before 2011, I mean, you have to look at a country that has been under what is Ba'ath Party rule, and not too many people remember what ba or know what the Ba'ath Party is, but Iraq and Saddam Hussein, that was a Ba'ath Party. It's an idea that came out of Syria, the the leading intellect on Ba'athism, um, which is t uh, kind of a hybrid of socialism moving towards Leninism type thinking. He was out of Syria. His name's Michelle Affleck. And uh, so this idea of this bath system gained real traction within Syria. So to the point where in 1963, you have your first coup that topples the government and the bathists take charge. And then in 66, you have another military coup that takes out the other bathists and puts another group in charge. And then finally, in 1970, you have another revolt coup where Hafez al-Assad, who is the father of Bashar al-Assad, ends up, he's the one that's basically leading this coup, and he's the one that essentially takes control in 70, 71, and consolidates power. So one of the things we've looked at in this podcast is that these, you know, dictatorships have been in rule, been in place for so long, and in some cases it was just a single individual we were looking at. Here we're looking at basically within a family. So Hafez al-Assad, he controls the country from 71 to 2001, then he dies, his son takes over Bashar al-Assad, and people probably know who he is by now. But he, you know, he was the third choice to take over the country. He has no background in running a country. He was trained as a doctor, I believe, as an ophthalmologist. So he's the one that took over. But the Ba'ath Party, what they really pushed on their um, population was a forced secularism, um, where political Islam, if there was political Islam, it was not allowed. And with that comes the brutality that the government is willing to use. In 1982, there's a town called Hama, which was an ancient town, and there was an uprising there, and it was um, political Islam. It was a large contingent, about 20,000 members of the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, they dropped leaflets. They said, we're going to come in, the Syrian government. And basically what they did was they just demolished the town and then took bulldozers and just bulldozed over everything. So the estimates, they put at 20,000 dead in that city. There could be more. And this was 1982, and that was under the father. So sometimes with these violent regimes, it seems like the more violent that the rule was with a case like Libya, in some cases Yemen, it seems like the uprisings are almost that much more violent. Um, it almost seems as though peaceful protests don't have the space to operate or they expect the worst. So when you're saying we've got a forced secularism here, so they're looking to remove Islam or any religion theoretically from the public sphere, so to speak. So to speak. Is this on ideological grounds or is this simply as a way to try to 
eliminate potential rivals to your power? What what is the thinking behind? Because it it it, it seems question. kind of like a no brainer that that's going to cause problems, <laughs> especially in an area with with high religious um, adherence and all of that. So the idea that you're going to impose secularism seems like kind of a dangerous way to go. So you, there, I'm just wondering what the thinking is behind that. You hit on both of them, Rob. It's two. It's one of it is ideological. They were very tightly aligned Syria all through the 70s um, with the Soviet Union. Okay. So they tried to toe that line of being somewhat of an atheistic, trying to stay non-committal to any type of religion. The other part of it is that this forced secularism is because they think they can maintain control this way. The worry for the the Assad family and the family that's in power is that um, you have a very large Sunni majority. And Bashar al-Assad, his father, um, what becomes the military because of the nepotism, they're not Sunni. They're not. They're from a, a sect within that you could consider the Shia sect, and they're almost considered heretics to a certain degree. So it's kind of like I, I like to put Syria in the context of let's say Iraq. Okay, Iraq had a 20% Sunni majority and an 80% Shia minority. So it was the minority ruling over the majority. Syria, you're going to have the minority ruling over the majority, except for that majority is going to be the Sunni population. And so what he also tries to do with the Assad government and, you know, trying to balance that, as you say, it doesn't seem like a very prudent plan. Um, what they would do is work with other sectarian components and tribal components. And you also have to remember, you got a 10% Christian minority there. You have 10% that are uh, Druze, Shia, Ishmaelis, is different groupings of religions that are considered outside the mainstream. And then you have 80% that are Sunni. And then you have 10% that are considered what you would call Alawites. The Assads are Alawites. And so with only 10% of the population demographics there, what they did was they basically played nicely with the Druze, played nicely with the Shia, the Ishmaelis, protect the Christians in the current civil war that had been rolling on for quite a while. So they were able to bridge some of those differences by kind of, you know, divide and conquer, basically. Divide your groups, uh, marginalize the Sunnis, and build up those other sects. So to make a long story short, yeah, it is a combination of both. It's ideological and it's a way that they thought they could govern by just kind of dividing the population and winning over some of the population because if they can say that we are going to be a you know a government that is free from religion then all those religious minorities might support you because you're not going to let the majority dominate them you're yes. going to say that, you know, we're going to have no religion in our government, so therefore Christians, Alawites, Druze, you guys are not going to be in a, in a minority religiously anyway. Because otherwise, if, you, if we didn't do that, then you're going to have that 80% of the population that's Sunni just steamrolling everyone. Yes, yeah, okay. uh, yes, absolutely. And so that also, and, another thing you just mentioned, so in Syria, we've got a, we've got a Sunni population-wise anyway, we've got a Sunni majority, but the minority is the ruling Ba'ath Party, or the Ba'ath Party is trying to unite all the minority groups. Yes. Uh, but in Iraq, it was the other way around. It was so, flip-flop, yep. So, it's, so the, this Ba'ath 
ideology, it really is kind of independent of religious thinking then, because you've got the same party with different groups making it up in two different countries that are next door to each other. Yes, you're right. And sometimes those bad parties under Assad or under Saddam Hussein, Syria and Iraq at times did not play nicely with each other. So okay. even though they they were considered themselves in within the same ideology and the same type of governance, there was still a lot of friction between those two countries. And I also left out one group, and we haven't talked about them because they've been whitewashed out of history for the most part until there's a conflict, and that's the Kurds. Okay, you got a 10% Kurdish minority there when you look at ethnic divisions. So you have 90% Arab in Syria, but you have a 10% Kurdish minority, and they are basically the great losers out of out of uh, the Treaty of Versailles, World War One. They weren't given an independent state, so they're spread between Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. And those guys are kind of the thorn in the side for all those countries because the Kurds, of course, want to be independent, yes. and there are a lot of them. They're just divided they're by just all the arbitrary divided. lines that were put in place at Versailles. Yeah, and and those and the Kurds, the Kurdish party, the PKK in Turkey does not get along with. And, and there's been instances in the past of the the Syrian Kurdish party not getting along with the Iraqi. Kurdish party. I think they're kind of looking at, um, you know, trying to power control. Should If Syria fell, I think the, the Kurds thought that might be the best case scenario because all of a sudden they could find their form their own little Kurdistan. But the Syrian government was never going to let that happen. The Iraqi government was not going to let that happen once they started clearing out ISIS because the Kurds, they sit on a ton of oil. They sit on a lot of oil. The whole idea of an independent Kurdistan was not going to work. So that gives you an idea into the sectarian. It's just this mismatch of all these different groups. And they're also geographically located in different places. Like the Druze will be right on the corner, right next to Libya on the very western side of Syria. Um, you have the Christians over to the west as well. And that's, you know, we're in, in west and into the south. And that's where Damascus is, you know, the seat of power. So I think it kind of only makes sense that the, you'd have heavier concentrations there around in the population that they thought the military, the government would take care of them. So yeah, the sectarian and tribal components, it just makes it really difficult. And then you see how the government uses it. It just exacerbates when it does turn into a civil war. This is kind of what you get. You get this bloody mess. All right. And so we've got this religious conflict at mm -hmm. play here in Syria. Uh, what else is going on? We've talked before about all the other countries. You've got unemployment, you know, just general financial and economic ongoing crisis, at least for the, you know, the lower classes. Maybe, you know, the monarchs are usually doing pretty good, but yeah. the people on the ground usually are not. So do you have a similar situation happening in Syria also? Yes, it absolutely is. Syria has just had a long history of a broken economy. It's another one of these countries that's relatively oil poor. Um, it does have diminishing, it does have oil reserves, but they're diminishing. And it's just, it, they're not exporters, okay? And that's where I use the Iraq scenario. Try and picture um, Syria being basically Iraq without the oil wealth, okay? So they're going to have to depend on other forms of developing an economy. 
and they just never have been able to uh, develop it, at least under Baathist rule. Uh, you have high unemployment rate, foreign trade barriers just because of their ties to terrorism, rising budget deficits, you have widespread, widespread infrastructure damage, water pollution. You know, it's just what it basically forced them into was Syria because of their, and they recognized this early on, that they don't have a strong economy, even under uh, Hafez al-Assad. They, they, they did not have a strong economy, so they had to reach out, and they essentially became clients states of a couple different countries. During the Cold War, they are a client state of the Soviet Union. And that will kind of give you an idea why Russia is in there right now. After the Soviet Union falls, they're having issues um, with their economy and their next door neighbors, Iran, even though it is extremely religious at this point, and they're Shia, and that kind of aligns better with the Alawites than it does with the Sunni population you find that the Iranians become their main economic sponsor. And then I will also pull aside one country, Lebanon becomes, once the Lebanese Civil War ends up, finishes up in 1989, right around there, you see the Syrian troops, part of the agreements where the Syrian troops were going to stay there and maintain the peace for a while. What you see is the Syrian government just basically siphoned from the Lebanese economy. And the Lebanese have always traditionally had um, very innovative and um, very strong merchants and um, had built, a, despite all the troubles that the country's gone through, a really strong, a good economy, a better economy that doesn't have oil, but is based on commerce, trade, stuff like that. Um, so that's where Syria finds itself. They never really had the resources, weren't able to develop a true economy. So in turn, they had to reach out to the Soviet Union for subsidies and, and whatever it may be to just keep it afloat, to pay the military, to pay the gas bills, to pay all those things. And then once the Soviet Union crumbles, you see before when the Soviet Union is starting to collapse, by about 1982, 83, 84, you see the Syrians really start to form a relationship with the Iranians under Ayatollah Khomeini at this point. So you have that long history of broken economy. Um, there's systemic corruption within the country. Um, and the, we talked about the sectarian lines. It really is nepotism along sectarian lines. You look at the Alawite family, or the Alawites, who only represent 10% of the population. They are the top members in the civilian government. They're the top members in the military. It's all distributed amongst that Alawite grouping, thinking that the allegiance will be there. And then all the individuals that you go down into the military or go down into the service within the government, then you'll start to see Sunnis in those positions. So that systemic corruption with the nepotism along sectarian lines, it doesn't just affect that, it also affects the economy. These guys are the ones that are getting rich. And then the autocratic regime nature of it, they just have a history of mass violence and repression and have been able to use it over and over. I mean, I mentioned Bashar al-Assad was the third choice to become the successor to his father. The first choice was actually his um, Hafez al-Assad's uh, own brother. But Hafez al-Assad had a stroke. He was gone. Not too many people. He went for, out of country for for attention. And he actually recovered from it. Not too many people did. But his brother launched an own coup. Uh, he was taking over. And um, as soon as Hafez got back, uh, you can imagine what happened to his brother. So 
that's kind of everything stays within the family here. And once you get past the family, you extend it out a little farther to the Alawite community, the, uh, the tribal community, what tribe they're from. So they'll, it's almost like a ranking system that people fall into. You can see that this is not going to <laughs> keep the population happy for very long. In some ways, this is an old story, I guess, where you've got corruption and violence. And then in this case, you've just to, just to recap some of the stuff we've been saying here, I mean, we've got suppression of, reli of religion, there was repression of political rivals, there's violence, there's nepotism, there's corruption. Uh, yeah, we've, we've got a very kind of tumultuous system here that is theoretically being held in place by the strong military and the strong repression and all of that. But obviously, this is going to change in 2011. And so what happens to finally provide an opportunity for the resentment and tension and all that to finally break out into the open? Boil over, yeah. A big part of it is um, the demonstration effect. As I said, you know, the, the like what they call is the starter, the date where you, it's, it's March 18th is the real date that you look at where um, the Syrian civil war, or at first it was dubbed the Syrian rebellion, the Syrian uprising, the Syrian revolt, and then by 2012, it's being called the Syrian civil war. The way that it starts is, a lot of it's a demonstration effect that's, you know, there's a match that's been lit across the Middle East and it's going across and it's basically the fire is extinguishing and getting rid of these rulers. And it comes up to Syria and um, the people are not, let's say, they, they've had enough. Okay, I won't say that they're not afraid to go out in the streets because given the government's history, I would be terrified to go out in the streets. But they do. Um, and what really sparks it is, is just there are 15 boys in a city called Dara. They're schoolboys, young teenagers, like 13, 14, 15 years old. And what they did was they sprayed anti-government anti graffiti on a school wall, the school that they attended. Relatively benign, you know. What the government did was they, they just rounded up. They, thought the they picked the 15 kids that they thought were responsible for the graffiti. And then they locked them up in jail. That happens March 6th of 2011. So it's the arrest and detention of these 15 schoolboys. On March 18th, they're still being held by the government. And, you know, rumors are circulating about what type of treatment that they're receiving in there. Finally, March 18th, the parents, the families, the people of Dara just basically go on a peaceful protest. They're demanding the release of these children. And uh, the government troops are given the order to open fire, and they open fire, dispersing the crowd. They kill four people in the process. Those are seen that March 18th with that protest in Dara. It's a city that's just south of Damascus. Um, that's going to be where it, eventually, it initially breaks out. From there, it's going to start to spread. And you're going to see it's almost like a wildfire, you know, a bunch of different wildfires in California. In Syria, you're going to see these wildfires bouncing around, and they're going to be hitting the major city centers. So the government troops, they, they, they killed people on March 18th. And then by April, you have protests breaking out in the third largest city in all of Syria. It's a city called Homs. What they tried to do is they tried to create a Tahrir Square model. So this is the demonstration effect where they looked at Egypt and how they were able to topple Hosni Mubarak by setting up that tent camp in Tahrir Square. The Syrians try and do the same in Homs. 
and uh, it's north of Damascus. If you're going up the country on the very western side, and most of the places that we're going to be talking about are on the west coast of Syria, which hugs the Mediterranean. So if you go up a little bit, Homs, all of a sudden you have protests break out there. It becomes one of the first rebellion centers. It becomes sustained. You do have security forces come in and break up that tent camp and try all these different methods, but Homs becomes a hotspot through the entire war. It is, if you're looking at Damascus, which is the very southwestern part of the country, you start to move up a couple hundred miles, you'll hit Homs along the coast. So that's April. That breaks up. By June 2011, you have an actual city. Now, it's not a large city, but it's the first city falls to, to what they were calling the rebels at the time. And this is in an area, when you look along that map, once again, it's going to be on the western side, but it's the northernmost part. It's going to be hugging the Turkish border. So all of a sudden, you have protests break out there. Security forces were supposedly routed there. A lot of the reporting out of this is sketchy sometimes and it's difficult to discern there's reports of um like about 120 deaths of the security forces um that are taken out but this is also the place where they start talking about defections from the syrian military and the secure syrian security forces so june in that idlib province is and they're still fighting over idlib today even as syria kind of winds down idlib in that area in that town that's taken and you can see where when you look at governments that are repressive in this nature they can generally keep clamps on around the the nerve center the capital uh the area where they have the greatest control but when you start to go into the farther flung provinces you find that it starts to wane, okay, the, their level of power. And it's only natural that these places start to break off and you start to see rebellions as far away from the center of power as possible. So um, June, that, a city falls. Now, it's a relatively minor city. I think at that point, Assad really starts to get, I don't know if he gets nervous, but he starts to realize, I think, that uh, the brutal tactics are not going to work. So what he does on June 20th, he delivers a message that he's, he's going to have reforms and dialogue. Um, he's calling on new parliamentary elections and greater freedoms, whatever that means, <laughs> and in, in that location. And I could say parliamentary elections, what does that mean? The elections, people know that, uh, okay, we get to vote now. Okay, so we're going to vote in a rigged election. It doesn't mean anything. Violent protests continue and um, violent repression continues. And this is one of the natures, I mentioned it with Libya, how the protests started off really ugly and got ugly quickly. Um, Syria, the first couple of protests were peaceful, but once they saw that the Assad government was going to use the old tactics that had been tested and true for them, you see that the Syrian rebellion gets very, um, gets violent on both sides. So you could say that they're protecting themselves. There's also, you know, there's... There's people protecting themselves, but there's also a lot of bad actors that just start to flow into Syria. By August 18th, so we're still talking, you know, March 18th was that first incident. By August 18th, you have President Obama is calling for Assad to step aside because everybody can see what's going on in there. August 18th, or by January 2012, Assad, he's still defiant. But he's going to talk about comp another compromise with the population. And he says he's going to have a referendum on the uh, new constitution or on the constitution in March of 2012. Obviously, 
if I was living in that country, I would have absolutely no faith that there was going to be a referendum on the Constitution. And if there right. was, that it would help me. Yeah, their, so. their record on actually following through on promises like that, I'm sure, a little bit sketchy. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. The carrots are dangled there, but right behind it's that stick. <laughs> so it really, after that, when you move into 2012, this is where things really start to get hairy inside Syria. And I can go through, I'll go through a couple of the events here and where we get to the point where it's actually de declared as a civil war based on death counts. So I'll give you that and, and then give you, just propose my theory as to why all of a sudden it escalates so quickly. And what you find is that the Syrian government is outmanned and outgunned. They can't do it. By July, so January, you know, Assad gets on the air. March is supposed to have this new um, referendum on the Constitution. But then you get to July of 2012, the heavy fighting spreads to Aleppo. And Aleppo is a critical city in Syria. It is the largest city. It is the commercial hub. It also stands along the main highway that connects Syria to Turkey. So all of a sudden that gets cut off. And, you, and most of the major fighting in the, when you get into later stages of the Civil War, Aleppo becomes a modern-day Stalingrad. It, it becomes really ugly. But once fighting starts in Aleppo, um, Assad must really start to get nervous about this. July 18th, same month with Aleppo, you have a bombing in the National Security Ministry during a crisis meeting. Okay, so you have the top officials in the Syrian government trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do with this situation. Someone is able to plant a bomb in there and kill like four of the top members of the Syrian um, government, including their minister of defense, who, and this points to the nepotism, it's Bashar al-Assad's brother-in-law. He's killed in it. At this point, not that I ever thought that, let me put this to you, wait, Rob. Uh, when this all broke out in Syria, when I, all I heard was that there was a Syrian revolt, I was like, oh, geez, this is not going to go well, because there are multiple competing factors that we'll get into a little while. I knew that the Assad government was not going to hand it over just based on their history. I also knew that um, Iran was never, ever going to let Syria fall. Syria is very important to them, and we can get into the reasons for that. So by end of July 2012, so we're basically almost gone like a, a full year here in a couple months, the estimates coming out of the UN is that there's already been one year, there's been 20,000 deaths. And really, the heavy fighting has not started yet. By March 2013, 2014, that's when it, you have multiple actors on the ground. And my theory is that as Egypt wound down, as Tunisia wound down, as Libya is wound down with the removal of Muammar Gaddafi in October, Saleh's gone in um, Yemen, that it allowed the, a lot of the individuals who were doing the fighting in Libya, doing the fighting in Yemen, it allowed them all to move northwards and go to Syria to fight this war against what they saw was a tyrannical secular regime and i'm talking about al-qaeda primarily i think that's one of the reasons why this the syrian government just their military just cannot stand up they cannot stand up to them because of the number of fighters that are flying in up until this point this had basically been a uprising by 
Syrians against this repressive regime, this violent yeah. repressive regime. So, but basically, what you're saying is, so by early 2013, which is two years roughly after that uprising began, at that point we start to see the outsiders start coming in, and these outsiders are coming in on the rebels' side, but yeah. they're probably not pursuing necessarily the same goal, the original goals of the rebels. The original no. rebels, I'm sure, we're looking to just you know kick out the bad actors in government and hopefully enjoy some sort of self-government or something. But now you've got a whole bunch of outsiders who have kind of cut their teeth fighting against governments elsewhere, coming into Syria with the ultimate goal. If you're talking terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and all of that, yeah. this is them looking to set up a new government yeah. that they did not see developing in those other countries that they came from what basically what i'm getting at is so they they were fighting in these other countries like egypt and all of that yes. once the egyptian revolution ends these folks then jump into syria were they disillusioned with what was happening in those other countries and decided to go try again in syria or did they accomplish what they wanted in those other countries and now they wanted to basically spread their influence to syria also that's a great question. I would say, Rob, that they were not disillusioned, that they had accomplished their goal of dislodging these different leaders. And then what was coming in behind was either a state of anarchy, and a lot of times in that anarchy, that's where you see terrorist groups flourish. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so they saw, um, Al Qaeda saw that, you know, Libya was. They have a strong presence there with groups like Ansar al-Sharia. We talked about al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in, in Yemen, which is one of the strongest branches. They start to go to Syria because, once again, it's one of these secular governments that they can topple. And you're right, the original people, it shifts from what is people rising up to displace their leader and try and put something else in place that's going to be equitable for everybody or better form of rule to all of a sudden where... The, the people of Syria, they're in, in some sort of a stalemate. They're never going to win this war without outside support or this conflict without outside support. So all of a sudden what you have is the flow of al-Qaeda and other um, jihadist groups moving into, into Syria. Syria also, I'll say this now, I, I think that they probably had already in pockets in major city centers, pretty Al-Qaeda probably had a pretty good network set up in some of these cities because, and I say this because if you look at the Iraq war, when we were fighting, the U.S. was fighting the insurgency in Iraq, um, the major rat line where all the Al-Qaeda fighters came from was through Syria. They were facilitating everything, all the fighters coming in. Uh, that's where we saw if there was attack, and a lot of times they would attack on Iraqi soil and flee back to Syria, and that became a major transit route or an, an kind of a conduit for them to destabilize Iraq. Which makes sense, because I mean, the one of the reasons Al Qaeda was such an effective terrorist organization was because they were they were pretty good at planning and you know playing the long game, and so I. I I would imagine you're probably right that they probably had a network going in Syria probably long before there was any type of uprising. It's just now they've got an opportunity to finally put their plans that have probably been dormant for a while, but put those plans into action in order to spread their influence. And, you know, on, on some level, you've got the terrorists are looking to establish some sort of new system of government. 
but there's always the factions within those groups that just basically like to watch the world burn to you know yes. use the cliche from the from the dark knight but there mm-hmm. are some people that are just in it for the violence and this is a yeah. good it's a good place to go if you're looking for violence i suppose yeah violence as well as um just loot yeah you know um a lot of times we look at terrorists like al-qaeda groups like that isis and we think that you know it's all just about bloodshed and establishing a caliphate or whatever their different groups may desire what they say they're going to desire but my goodness they are so involved in many different forms of illicit funds raising money they almost operate like criminal gangs um, where there is going to be that economic component where they are going to be selling black market oil when they take over the oil fields in syria and shipping it up to turkey if you remember places like um, palmyra palmyra in uh, which was old roman ruins there and there was all these pictures about with isis blowing up these old roman ruins well they did blow up a lot of these but we find that a lot of the antiquities, a lot of the smaller pieces that could be taken down, chiseled out, they're making their way up to Turkey and being sold on the black market. So there's there's always this, with these groups, it's a a weird thinking. You think about these pious individuals that are zealots and believe in this, but at the same time they operate like criminal gangs almost. Yeah, because especially, I mean, if you've if you're broadcasting images to the world that oh these guys are these guys are exploding exploding all these old ruins, basically what you want to do is you know if you're looking to make make a buck, yeah, you you blow one thing up, make it look like everything's destroyed, and then that gives you basically a, a blank check to go and sell the thing to to whoever you want because the world thinks it's destroyed, so the world's not going to be looking for it. Because yeah. norm- normally you've got all kinds of rules in place about repatriating, you know, native artifacts from if it's taken by yes. a colonial power, it's supposed to go back to where it belongs and all of that. But if everyone thinks it's destroyed, then the you know law enforcement isn't going to keep an eye out for that kind of thing. No, so no, in no, some no. ways, it's yeah, it makes sense that that's what you're going to do. Yeah, I mean, I always say, you know, people that call them just just the lunatics and nut jobs and stupid um, about some of these groups. They're not stupid. You you brought up a very good point about them playing the long game like Al-Qaeda. If I look at the two major or outside players that were involved, um, non-state actors that were involved in Syria, they're Al-Qaeda and ISIS. ISIS was playing the short-term game. Take as much ground, declare a caliphate, and you know hope it stands, thinking it's going to stand. Al-Qaeda has been portraying itself as this, we're not ISIS. Um, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We're not as brutal as they are, as you can see, what we're going to do. And you can see messaging coming from Ayman al-Zawahiri saying, we, you know, we got to play this smart here because uh, ISIS is going to eventually alienate the population. And then we'll be there to provide the support, to provide the services because all the infrastructure in the country has been damaged. Al-Qaeda um, is saying, you know, we can help you there. That was, you know, the kind of game plan in Syria for two of these groups. Then I'll also talk like Al-Qaeda, for example, they're getting influence from other countries. Um, Turkey, for example, Turkey becomes the major. I talked about Syria being the rat line for during the Iraq war and the Iraq insurgency for moving um, members of Al-Qaeda to fight the insurgency and members of Hezbollah from Iran and Lebanon to fight the insurgency. You'll see with um, Syria, 
Turkey becomes the major rat line. And Erdogan, the president there, he actually mobilizes and is helping push al-Qaeda into Syria because he wants them to take care of the Kurds. So this is where it all starts to get really tangled, where you start to pull in all these different countries, the individuals that border Turkey, and then countries such as Russia, the United States, Israel. They're all drawn into this conflict because everybody, there's so many people that have their own agenda. There's, like, there's some dominant players that have their own agenda. And if you go through it, it's Iran, it's Russia, it's Turkey. Israel wants to protect its border, its northern border from Lebanon. Um, so they're worried about weapons being transferred from Iran across Syrian ground into Lebanon. And then the U.S. is involved because the United States were, con we became concerned with ISIS. I've always maintained that ISIS is probably the least of our threats out of all these terrorist organizations, just because I, I, I don't think you can have the entire world against you and show such brutality and expect to survive that long. Um, and ISIS also didn't really have, as far as I know anyway, they did not really have a way to project force out into the world. Uh, Al-Qaeda... Because they're playing the long game, they've got, you know, sleeper cells, whatever you want to call it. They have at least some ability to project chaos and, you know, force out into the broader world. But ISIS, like you say, was more, focusing more on the short game. They can cause a lot of trouble in the neighborhoods where they exist, sure, but they're not really, like, when it comes to, you know, a threat to the existence of the United States, neither of them are a threat to the existence of the United States, but we've seen... Obviously, in like, September 11th and all that, we can see that some groups that are playing a long game can project force, even if it's only for like a brief spasm. 9-11 yeah. wasn't followed up by any kind of massive attacks anywhere else. They, not maybe for because of will, but just because of, of ability. But something like ISIS is, yeah, they're really nasty to the people that live there, but they are not a threat to the world like, you know, like a lot of kind of the hype, I think, that was attached to them. Yeah. The one thing I will say about ISIS that does make them dangerous is that they relied so heavily on foreign recruits. And yeah. um, all throughout Europe, you look at the numbers that were coming to fight for ISIS from the United States as well. The numbers are quite staggering. And the whole question is when ISIS gets defeated or is defeated, you know, who's going to go back and what do we have to worry about? And, you know, we see, we saw a lot of these. I think when ISIS was starting to take a real licking in the Syrian field, in, in the combat field, you saw them start to lash out at the, at the European capitals. So you, you look at all those San Bernardino shooting, you have the Bataclan Theater in Paris, in France, um, where the Eagles of Death Metal were playing. Those are all ISIS operations, the Manchester City, uh, Manchester uh, bombings of the Ariana Grande concert. Yeah, that's that's where the problem with ISIS comes in, where they go back and they may not have the, the network set up. And that's where Al-Qaeda is different. They've got these larger networks inside countries that they've been cultivating. So, the two different approaches. The Al-Qaeda approach is very pragmatic compared to the ISIS approach. The ISIS approach was just take territory, hold it, claim a caliphate, which Al-Qaeda and everybody disagreed with. You can't just go and claim the new caliphate. I mean, look at our intervention there. It was 
strictly under the Trump administration. It was all about defeating ISIS. It was kind of transactional. Um, you know, you know uh, as soon as we do that, we're done. We're out of there. Problem is, they're not defeated. Okay. Yes, they are. They are on the rocks. Okay. They don't have their two capitals anymore, and they've dispersed. But they're coalescing in different areas of of the region, looking for the next fight, looking for the next problem. And you had also mentioned that they, they that uh, they don't have they can't project out to other countries in in the world. Yes, I will agree with ISIS. They, it's difficult for them. But you'll see that within Al-Qaeda and in ISIS, like Al-Qaeda had this group, I don't know if you remember the name, the Khorasan group. And when we started bombing in Syria, one of the groups we hit was the Khorasan group. This was a section of ISIS that was devoted to attacks against the West. Al-Qaeda will have a very similar component. You know, it's about, they haven't given up on the West or hitting New York again, hitting Washington, or wherever it may be. But there's more important battles here at home. And when you look at it in a theological perspective, their goal is to topple Saudi Arabia. Okay, That's the site that holds the two holiest shrines in all of um, Islam. And they view the, the, the kingdom as being corrupt and um, not following the true path of Islam. So their real goal, and that was bin Laden's goal right from the beginning, was he wanted to, um, you know, he believed, once the Saudis stopped working with him, he realized that one of our goals is to eliminate the Saudi control of Mecca and Medina and take control of that. Oh, that's interesting. I, I hadn't made that connection before, but it does make sense. That would be the ultimate goal. Because I guess that's one of the things that's been kind of at the back of my mind throughout all of this discussion is that when you've got groups like ISIS that are going from country to country and knocking out governments and all of that, there has been the question in the back of my head of what is the ultimate goal here? But that that actually kind of ties it together. Saudi Arabia is the ultimate goal because that's the yeah. site of all the holy lands, uh, the holy sites, Mecca, Medina. Uh, it's also, you know, size-wise, that's a big chunk of the Middle East. That's um, it's kind of a sim. It's kind of like the symbolic richest center of the Middle East. So okay, that makes sense. <laughs> and so yeah. it kind of makes. And so that also helps to kind of put it in context why the fighting is so intense in Syria. Because if if these guys can win in Syria. Then at that point they've got Saudi Arabia pretty isolated geographically anyway because they're kind of surrounding it at that point. If exactly. Got, these organizations are in control of, you know, Yemen and and Egypt and yeah. Tunisia. They're, basically, they're surrounding Saudi Arabia, and so if they can win, then it makes sense that they could then start squeezing uh, the Saudis. Yeah, huh, and and those are the non-state actors, and then you have the state actors such as Iran who is constantly in conflict with um, Saudi Arabia. They want to establish regional hegemony. And then the Turks under Erdogan, they have what you would call a neo-Ottoman agenda where he is trying to, right now he's trying to make sure he gets his own little chunk of Syria once it starts, once the fighting stops. Uh, he wants to, so this becomes a giant, in Syria it becomes a giant proxy war with, you know, Saudi Arabia has interest in it, Iran, Turkey, I would say that Iran is probably the most important. Iran saw Syria as it cannot fall. It cannot fall because what it does is it, if you control Syria, in, which they have essentially, if they tell Syria to do something before this uprising and everything, Syria would do it. 
because they're beholden to Syrians uh, to, to Iran for oil and to keep their economy afloat. Syria stands in between Lebanon and Iran. Okay, and what the goal of the Iranians always was was to have a land bridge to make sure that they can supply weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Syria stands in that way. If you can have what they would call the land bridge, they go straight across. It's just a straight shot and over across. And they have been doing this all and trying during the Civil War. You see multiple shipments going across from Iran into Lebanon to the point where it, the Israeli Air Force has conducted over 200 airstrikes. We never hear about them. Have you heard about any air, Israeli airstrikes inside no. Uh, Syria? No. No. What they've done is, and I, I, I think there's another back room agreement here between the Russians and the Israelis where the Russians say, okay, you know, just don't hit any of our, our, our points, you know, hit any of our locations. But if you feel like there's something you need to take out and it's within your strategic interests, um, you don't want to have a bunch of missiles that are parked right on your border, then you can take them out. And the Israelis have taken, you know, launched over 200 airstrikes. I don't know what the number is up to now. I think it was last year they were up to about they they had just reached around 200. They were also t they also took out a key leader of Hezbollah at the Damascus airport. So the Israelis definitely have been involved, but they've kind of stayed out of it. They've also been involved in beneficial ways, I would say, where they, um, a lot of wounded fighters, even if they want the destruction of Israel, what we've seen is they've been treated in Israeli hospitals and taken care of, uh, which sounds very odd, but um, that's been the case. And the Israelis have been trying to tr protect the Druze population as well, which was kind of falling into the area where it was under control of you know rebel groups that would not be kind to them. With the sheer cast of players that we've got going on here, I mean, the, this keeps making me think of like the outbreak of World War One, where you're trying to balance all the various alliances and who's on which side. And yeah. you, know, you get to the Onion articles where you've got one country declaring war on itself because they get confused by who's <laughs> the alliance and all that. So we've got this situation where you've got Syria. There's a civil. There's a. There's a legitimate uprising by disaffected Syrians. Yeah. But that's providing kind of a context for or a, or a um, what's the word I'm looking for a uh, an excuse I guess yeah. for all these other players to try to make their visions of the Middle East come true. And so you've got some countries like Russia pursuing the conservative approach where they want Syria to remain intact because that yes. was kind of a base of sphere of influence for the Russians. But then you've got other countries like Iran rooting for the destruction of Syria so that they can start getting back in touch with Hezbollah over in Lebanon. And then you've got all the various non-state actors pursuing in there. You've got Turkey kind of rooting for the for the, the dismembering of Syria. You've got Kurds who also want Syria to be dismembered because they yeah. want their territory and all of that. Yeah. So it's it's this kind of becomes the pretext is the word I was looking for, not context, but the pretext for all these other countries trying or all these other people trying to establish a new Middle East. And they basically see Syria as the vehicle for doing that. Yeah. And then that ends up just sucking in all these other countries, Israel wanting to stop Hezbollah because Hezbollah is launching attacks on Israel. So the yeah. Russians are allying with the Israelis to let them bomb these, these Hezbollah centers yeah. and all of that. 
Uh, and then in the meantime, you still have the civil war happening back in, in Syria. Yes. And at, at that point, I mean, things are getting so chaotic that that must be the point at which they start launching the chemical weapons and all of that to try to put yeah. down the, the domestic uprising. This two, is just two, getting very messy. It's, it's right around 2013, 2014, and you start to see the first both chemical as well as nerve agent attacks. Sarin gas is used in one, one or, or, or a couple of the attacks. And this is actually before the Russians intervene. The Russians come in in 2015. And if you remember, part of that deal was that, okay, Assad's using chemical weapons. Obama had made that uh, statement about the red line and the, uh, about the use of chemical weapons. And then Putin said, okay, we'll take care of the chemical weapons. We'll destroy those stockpiles and whatnot. Well, we know how Putin works. Um, that was just, as you said, the pretext for him to come in there and assert his power. So when they start when they start using chemical weapons, you can see that this is a regime that was on the precipice of falling. At this point, if you look at it in 2015, you have Al Qaeda there, you have ISIS there, you have the Turks running bombing runs on the Kurds in some cases, some cases ISIS. Hezbollah is in there as early as really. The first time they acknowledge it is um, in April 2013, but they're in there much earlier. They lose a third of their fighting force, the best I can estimate, in Syria, and they're still losing the battle. Then the Iranians come in, and for all their power, they do not have what you would call a true conventional air force. And the Iranians are having difficulty. I don't know if you remember the reports. You know, this we talk about spillover, but it spills over into Iraq, where... ISIS was on the march, and, you know, they captured Mosul, named that the new caliphate, larger, large oil-producing area along with Kirkuk. They were five miles outside the Baghdad airport, five miles away from the Baghdad airport. And many people have associated that with, if you control the Baghdad airport, you control the country. When we, the United States first came in there and toppled Saddam Hussein, the whole idea was set up at the Baghdad airport and make sure you're controlling things there. So Iran has been very savvy in the way they've done this. If you look, um, by 2013, they really are controlling the Syrian military operations. Then they see the problems where you have the government to the south of them, Iraq, which they are allied with. Um, it's a large, it's a Shia government. It's already um, in working cooperation with the Iranians. You see ISIS driving within five miles of the border and the Syrian and, and, and the Iraqis are calling out for help and eventually what that does is the Iranians say okay we'll help you but what that does is it gives them more power and influence inside Iraq just with Syria I wouldn't say that they're wanting to destroy they don't want to destroy Syria they want to get it back to sort of the status quo but also have even more leverage than they already had before so that they can leverage Syria to the best of their abilities Serious. It's kind of a sphere of influence, but it's also kind of a buffer, right? Exactly. It's a buffer. It, it's a buffer between Lebanon and Iran. It's a buffer between Iraq and Iran. It's a buffer between Lebanon and Iran, Turkey. Uh, it becomes this important transit ground, and also because it does have the Russians have built two large naval bases in on the Mediterranean, so that gives them access to the Mediterranean, and this is where. Putin and his, um, you know, real politique, he saw this opportunity, came in there, 
And that's when you start to see the war start to change. And I, I could start to see the momentum change because you got to really kind of control the air in order to win any type of campaign. And when once the Russians control the air in Syria, then you start to see the Syrian forces, which are really Iranian, Hezbollah, who start to push back and start to defeat ISIS, start to defeat Al-Qaeda or what is known as Al-Nusra Front. So that's when you start to see the shift. And then we get involved with supporting and providing basically the air cover in Iraq for groups such as Hezbollah, but a group that becomes very familiar. Well, it's, they're known as the PMF or the Popular Mobilization Front. When ISIS was five miles outside the airport in Baghdad, the, the government in Iraq was like, we've we got to get something together here or else the country's <laughs> going to fall to these blood, these cutthroats, you know? Mm-hmm. What they did was they just mobilized all these groups that were essentially Shia militias. And I would say bordering on death squads, okay? And there's like 70 different of these militias that are all pulled into one group called the Popular Mobilization Front. And it's all being directed by the top member of the um, Iranian military. So then it really starts to get ugly because you have these Shia Shia death squads that are going through. It's not about rooting out ISIS. Then it starts to become more about um, you know ethnic cleansing, uh, some of the atrocities that are committed on the Sunni population in Iraq are horrific. But it's just inviting in more and more problems. So this popular mobilization front basically represents the Iraqi army and what was doing all the fighting in Kirkuk, in Mosul, and taking back all these areas. It was a series of militias that were pulled together, given you know a lot of the material that they had, or some of it was U.S. stuff that had fallen into their hands. And it was the Iraqi government that was U.S. military equipment that they were able to bring into battle. Which, which does make a difference when you're able to apply that type of force. Of course, ISIS also captured a lot of U.S. military hardware that they were able to apply to the battlefield, which adds to the death counts. So in the big picture, just kind of setting us up for the, the, the final episode where we're going to kind of try to make sense of all of this and tie all these loose strands together. But basically, what the way I understand it so far is that so the Arab Spring, this, this kind of popular uprising against oppressive regimes mm-hmm. breaks out in 2011 mm-hmm. and it leads to the expulsion of these dictatorships in these various countries around the Middle East but Syria becomes kind of the flashpoint for a more prolonged effort because Tunisia, Yemen, Egypt these are fairly peripheral places in the Middle East, but Syria is, you know, it's kind of like the crossroads of the Middle East, since it's connected to all the other countries. I mean, it's surrounded by all these other countries that we're talking about, Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran. And so Syria takes on a significance that those other places really didn't take on because of its central location. And because it was a central location, all these people around Syria had long had plans for like a bro- uh, reshaping the Middle East, and those plans always involved Syria and then ultimately Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So when the Arab Spring uprisings move to Syria, that provides the context for all these people to try to put their plans into motion, all these different countries, all these non-state actors. And because there's so many different people with so many different agendas, 
agenda, whatever the plural for that is, <laughs> yeah. um, Syria becomes kind of ground zero for a whole lot of different people pursuing a whole lot of different ends. Those people yeah. are not compatible with each other, which creates a, a much larger amount of bloodshed than it did in all those other countries. Yeah. And so Syria becomes kind of the... What, what I was trying to kind of wrap my head around is that all those earlier in, those earlier examples we were talking about with Tunisia, Yemen, uh, Tur- um, Egypt, those places didn't really invite all the outside intervention that Syria did because of kind of the peripheral nature of it. But since Syria is more central to the Middle East, that's that's what's bringing in, you know, everyone's now paying attention in a way that they did not pay attention before. Yes. And you end up with this weird alliance system, going back to the World War One analogy, where one country is allying with another country to try to influence the, the future direction of Syria. And that brings in a lot of outside attention that didn't happen in all those other countries. And so when we come back to talk in our next episode, where we kind of wrap things up, I imagine we're going to talk about what happens. Syria becomes a much longer, bloodier conflict than those other ones did. And so we'll talk about kind of what happens with Syria, but then we can also talk about, you know, maybe catch up on all those other countries also to find out where they are and what happened to them in the meantime, while everyone's attention is focused on Syria to the, you know, to the extent that people are paying attention to Syria, because it's, I don't, in the U.S. anyway, it's never really (laughs) captured the attention of, of kind of the broad public the way other incident, other situations might, but realistically, it probably should. Yes. Yeah. E- I mean, Egypt was important, but you know, Mubarak just stepped aside. Um, the pressure mm-hmm. was there. He had. He, I mean, the whole question is, had you know, had he been willing to use force, what that what that would have looked like? Thank goodness he didn't. Gaddafi was willing to use force, but quickly the, the Europeans as well as the UN jumped in and made sure that he wasn't able to apply the force. When it comes to Syria. Everybody was saying, wow, this is a tangled web that has a chance to pull in a lot of people. And it did. It sucked in so many different groups and with competing thoughts. And it just has become the center of a, I I like to say it's a proxy war, but it really isn't a proxy war. It's, it's a full out war that involves states, um, states that are using proxies to fight, do the fighting. And it's all about, you know, seeing it as critical to Middle Eastern control. And the thing that worries the Sunnis is that Syria will, not that it wasn't under complete control of Iran before, but it's going to fall under complete control of Iran. And also Iraq is going to be falling under control of Iran. So Saudi Arabia is feeling nervous about this. The Ottomans, Sunni, they're also a little nervous about things, but... We don't have enough time to get into that, but Erdogan, he does a pretty good job of shooting himself in the foot when he needs to 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 scuttle anything that he could do. The last thing I just I, I feel remiss if I didn't just mention it as it stands right now, the refugee crisis. We didn't have this type of refugee crisis with Libya. We had maybe a million split, spilling over in Libya. With Tunisia, you saw some refugees, but you really, in Yemen, you saw refugees, um, but not the numbers we see in Syria. You look at the pre-war population, it was 22 million. Right now, you have 6 million people that have outright fled the country. Um, the majority are in Turkey. You got 3.4 million in Turkey. Then you put another 1 million in Lebanon, refugees. Lebanon has a population pre-war of only 4 million. So you're adding another million to 
So they've got five. You're adding twenty percent to their population. Well, Lebanon's like you know the size of my closet. Now you want to add a million people to it? Good lord! Exactly. And then Jordan, they take in six hundred seventy thousand Syrian refugees. But they're also when you look at some of the other regions that experience like Libyan refugees. um, There's some Sudanese refugees. You have a large Palestinian refugee. I'm leaving that out of these numbers. Um, you probably have about one, approaching one million refugees in Jordan, which does have a larger population. You're looking about, you know, nine, ten, ten million right around there. But uh, you know, I think you could scrape away and put one million there pre-Arab Spring. So that has had tremendous pressures on those countries. And my biggest worry is that when um, Syria winds down, that Jordan's going to be the next hotspot. Um, because once again, it's one of these kingdoms. It's the last kingdom that was formed out of this, uh, out of World War One. The Hashemite kingdoms between Jordan and Iraq, and Jordan is still the one under King Abdullah, and um, viewed kind of in the same way as Saudi Arabia as being um, not very pious and not following along with. They see it as a weak link. It's the next place to fall. That's that's always been my concern. With, well, one of my concerns is that Jordan will be the next flashpoint. All right. Well, now that everyone is concerned, <laughs> I think that's probably a good time to uh, wrap this up. And then when we come back next time, we will uh, see where those concerns take us. We will see what happens in the Middle East after all of these events, these tumultuous events of the early 20 teens, and see where things are now. I'll do my best to wrap it together, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, no problem. <laughs> we'll, we'll, see. we'll we'll make it happen. <laughs> so uh, so uh, thanks for joining me again, Adrian, and we will uh, be back in a couple of weeks. Great. I appreciate it, Rob. Thank you so much, and this was a pleasure. And thank you for joining us today. Join us again in two weeks as we try to wrap this up and hopefully draw some useful conclusions regarding the historical importance of the Arab Spring. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast, or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at workinghistorians at gmail.com. For James Fennessy and Adrian Calamel, I am Rob Denning. Bye-bye.